Welcome to episode 266 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. Thank you for listening. Before we get to Stageworthy, I wanted to mention my audio drama, St. Nick and the Big F*** Up. St. Nick and the Big F*** Up is a holiday audio drama in six parts written and performed by me and tells the story of a part-time mall Santa who's having the worst day. Chapter 3 is available now, and it and the previous two episodes, which I suggest you check out first, can be found at stnickandthebigfup.com, as well as everywhere you get podcasts. You can find Stageworthy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the archive of all 266 episodes at stageworthypodcast.com. If you want to drop me a line, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at PhilRickaby, and my website is philrickaby.com. If you want to support Stageworthy, consider dropping some change in the virtual tip jar. You can find a link to that in the show notes. Your support helps me continue to bring you great conversations in Canadian theatre. My guest this week is writer, dancer, and performer, Laura Pitchinen. The last time we spoke, I mean, we spoke briefly last year around the time that you were getting ready to do uh, your musical at Next Stage. Right. And then we we had some conversations around the time that you were getting ready to do a, a virtual performance or digital performance uh, during the Toronto Fringes online yeah, uh, event. Yeah, the Toronto Fringe Collective. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of, uh, I want to talk a bit about, about the show that you were doing for the Toronto Fringe Collective and what your experience was like doing a digital performance. Yeah. Like, okay. So how did I, you prepare for digital anyway? I ended up doing a bit of a cop out for the digital wise because I originally, and what I still plan to do for next year, since all of the fringe shows have been just pushed up one year, uh, is to do a stand-up comedy piece, a storytelling stand-up comedy piece about my life as a queer ex-religious person. And that that's right. still going to happen. And so they said for Toronto French Collective, they said you can do the same project or you can do a different project or whatever you think would be best for the medium. So I ended up going back to, I thought that not, there's nothing worse than doing like stand-up comedy without an audience. And I just couldn't bring myself to perform a piece of that show and try and digitize it. Like, I just don't think I have it in me to, to tell jokes to my room, you know, yes. and, and keep up that energy there. It's not the same. It's not, it's, it's not going to work. And I didn't want, I didn't want to put it on film. It's just, it's not meant for film right. uh, unless it's filmed live then, but it's still theater. So what I ended up doing is looking at an old script um, called the suicide key that I had written about three or four years ago and I'd written it into a full-length play and I had such mixed reviews and people didn't really get it and it and that's okay you know that's what happened especially with complicated topics so this show was about a friend of mine who had suffered with mental illness her entire life and she had decided she was going to kill herself and mm. she had 
asked me to help her, not in the act, but in the planning of it. And then in the aftermath, in the effect. Mm. And so I wrote that entire thing about, you know, I believe in the right to death. I believe in uh, bodily autonomy, autonomy for people with mental illness. And then yet the whole conversation we were having, I was trying my best to be like, well, what if you just, uh, do you want to try this? And what, you know, I still tried so hard to to keep her here, even though mm. I had a different kind of philosophy about it. So I ended up taking that short play or the, sorry, that, that, uh, that full length play. And I made it into a short story instead. Mm. And that really transformed for me the tone I was trying to get through. Um, mm. because mostly before I started writing plays, I was writing poetry and prose. And so those kinds, that kind of structure was more familiar to me and mm -hmm. it was easier to get this like complicated feeling out. And there's a humor to it. There's a dark sarcasm to it that makes it enjoyable instead of just kind of like ramming people into the ground, which is what I think people didn't read into it when it was a play, when the actors were responsible for bringing that tone as an author, I was able to bring that tone more effectively. And I'm mm. sure other screen, uh, playwrights and screenwriters are good at that in their own medium. But this was something that I was really good at this short story and prose type style. So that mm. ended up working out really well for me. And how did you how did you end up presenting it? I presented it in a PDF document. And oh, okay. Yeah. And so I did some things with it that I'd never thought of before, like playing with font and spacing and things like that, that I had, I really tried to make it as visual as possible to, again, to create that tone that I felt was missing when people were reading the script. Mm. So that was kind of interesting. I'd never done that before, like skipping lines to kind of like make an emphasis and then have like one line of dialogue or... I have singular lines of dialogue interspersed between paragraphs of a kind of narration and then mm. it's one line of dialogue. And it doesn't explain who's saying this line of dialogue, but you kind of put it together. And it again, it, it almost doesn't matter who's saying that line. It pushes the story through. And I had a really fun time with that. On mm. the other hand, or in addition to, we were asked to create accessibility documents so that anytime if it was a video you had to have closed captioning you also had to prepare a script uh to send out but they were saying to make it compatible these documents compatible for visually impaired and the blind and that was really interesting and i'm i'm loving it and i'm trying to do it with all my documents and there's just certain ways that you you navigate through that document and that the mm. way that you present that information, sometimes it's as easy as like a bold lettering sans serif font and 1.5 spacing and mm. you, things like that. Things are a little bit more obvious, but then some of it is like uh, the reader for the, the assistive technology. If you just cut, keep pressing enter, enter, enter instead of page break when you want a big space like that, the reader will read it. Enter, enter, enter in the middle oh, of your page. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ooh. So there's like little things like that, that to discover were really interesting. And so I ended up um, posting two versions of it because I had done all this visual work with the font mm. and, the, and all that stuff for somebody who could see that and appreciate that visually. I wanted mm -hmm. to keep that. And then I made a document for the blind and visually impaired. But then what I did realize later on is I probably should have made a document for the blind and then a different document for the visually impaired because they're slightly different needs. For example, mm. like a visually impaired person 
a 16-point font is a good idea because they can see something, so help them out a little bit. But for the completely blind, it doesn't matter if it's 16-point font. There's They're not going to really be able to see that. They're not reading the document at all. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Did you ever at, at any point consider doing a like a, a like some sort of digital performance that wasn't just a PDF or did you like what was the process of getting to um, I'm just going to put this this digital PDF out? Yeah, I just I definitely thought, what am I going to do? I, I'm not really a film and television person to begin with. And that's what I thought of, you know, digital digital media. And I, I almost didn't participate in the Toronto Fringe Collective because of that. And, mm. and, uh, then, and they were open and said, you know, uh, if you don't participate in this, that's okay. You can still be deferred to next year's fringe. This is just kind of an extra thing. And then I was torn back and forth about like, well, I don't want to lose an opportunity. I mean, how often are we offered opportunities, especially yes. Right now. And so I thought like, what can, what can I do? But I did really think about, you know, okay, what if I could do a little bit of the comedy? Uh, At the time I had like a co-producer and I was like, okay, could we rent out a space so that at least I'm not doing it in my, my apartment? Like, could we, could we rent out a little cafe and make it look like there's people there? Maybe like, I don't throw some jackets on some chairs so that I, and then try to film that. And because I thought, wouldn't that be excellent marketing for the year after mm. when I was trying to say, everyone come watch my show. And then I could say, here's some clips, you know, that was a thought too. But mm-hmm. then just the mood of the pandemic, I think that's what really got me is saying like, I don't have the mental strength to overcome the lack of an audience in my work. Yeah. And I think my work's going to suffer for that. Mm. And I know there are so many actresses who, and actors who are versatile in film and theater and I'm just not one of them. I'm not a, I'm not really a film actress at all. And so I didn't, I didn't have a good platform to start that Mm. transition from theater to film so quickly. And in such a mood, like I was in such a bad place to just bring out some comedy in front of nobody. It just, it really wasn't going to happen beyond the limitations of like my technical abilities and like, where am I going to get that camera? Do I know anybody yeah. who does this kind of thing? Do I have to edit it myself? And like, y- you know, it, it's it's a whole, it's a whole thing. But Yeah. I, and it's been a hard thing for, I think everybody to navigate, like what suddenly, you know, people who have been like performing in live venues now it's like, well, I guess I have to learn how to present in video. Yeah. And it's not the same. The no. even the one film class I took, they were like, "You're doing way too much with your eyeballs. I need you to not do anything with your eyeballs anymore." <laughs> and they're and then they're like, "Look at the playback. You'll see it." And I was like, "Oh yeah, that's a that's abrasive to." And but in theater and in my real life, I'm talking with my hands. I'm talking with my whole body. My whole face is you know contorting and doing it's you. It doesn't translate well to film, even if you're just videotaping a live performance. From mm. that close up, it's it's too much. It's 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 too much. It's and you're not delivering the same performance. When I think of things like um, filmed media for like stand up comedies on Netflix and things like that, they're still filmed from a distance. Every once in a while, they'll get a different shot, a close up shot of something. But you know, mm-hmm. it's still it's still done as theater and it is filmed versus 
trying to turn something that is theater into film. But some people have that skill. They really and there were some really interesting and fun videos that went up and mm. I I was inspired by how much more creative these people were than I was because I <laughs> I bailed. I bailed hard. <laughs> They're like, "Do you yeah. want to do digital content?" Mm, no. I think there was only like five of us who did written content. Right. And to be honest, I don't think people wanted it. I, I, we had no real way to know how many people accessed our written work because with videos, they could track the views and plays and things like that. But right. with the written work, we have no idea how many people actually look mm-hmm. at it. But in my believies, I think that people didn't want that content at that time. So I think I really maybe shot myself in the foot there. But at the same time, artistically, I really felt that I had massively transformed this piece of work that I had struggled with for so long into like this perfectly condensed medium with the tone I wanted. And then now my plan is to reconvert that back into a play with what I learned. Yeah. I mean, it. the whole... It is an intimidating thing to 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 have been told and and to have tried to figure out like oh okay so I'm going to do this thing digitally um, I have no idea what that looks like um, and then you know deciding to put out the written word which is I mean it's a bold choice and it's also I don't know how many people were watching the videos like the the, the digital videos and all of that stuff. But um, it, it must have been hard for some people to be like, okay, I'm going to read something when in some ways reading online is not easy for people. Right. And it's not normally something you would see with Toronto Fringe. So people right. who are brought in through the Fringe you know, audience, they're not expecting to read anything. And it wasn't a play. It wasn't even like it was a script. It was a legitimate short story. So it really didn't fit into the Toronto Fringe mandate. It only did because of this kind of special year where we were yeah. allowed to do that. And um, credit to Fringe, they don't they don't check your content for whether or not it's part, you know, fits what right. they're trying to do. They let you do whatever you want artistically. So I was really lucky. I took it as a really lucky opportunity. That was something that really kind of brightened my day to say, oh, well, that was kind of lucky because I get to be in two fringes in a row. (laughs) That's very true. Three in total, including Silver Lining last year, which is a total blessing. When they pulled my name, they're like, oh, we know her. Uh, They were surprised (laughs) that I was here again. So Yeah. That doesn't happen to many people. Many people don't get to be pulled that often. Unless they're maybe in fringe, you know? Yes. Yeah. It, it it was like miraculous that that happened. Mm. And then to be offered this little boop of a, a mini fringe in this yeah. year was like, it was really crazy for me. And that, that was really cool. So I consider it more about my professional development than necessarily maybe I don't know how many people actually read it. I mean, in terms of, in terms of like the, the things that you learned, you learned about, about formatting. I mean, you learned about format formatting for uh, the blind and, and, and people who were, who were, who were uh, difficulty seeing and, and, and you, you, you know, you, you learned how to format, you like created a format for this, this piece that didn't have this same format before. So definitely a, a stretch, which is good. Yeah. 
Um, post that, how have you been keeping artistically? Have you have you found time to dance? Have you been creating in in different ways? What's 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 been keeping your creative life alive? I'm trying to do it in variety so that I always have something on the go. If I don't feel like going in one direction, I have a couple of others to choose from. Sometimes I just call the whole day off and, you know, it's a mulligan. We'll try again. Um, But I've been trying to exercise. At first I was saying like, just do a 10 minute burst of exercise three times a week. And I was so proud of myself for doing that. And then I was like, okay, let's, let's up it a little bit because that's not really enough exercise, especially because my apartment is so small. I'm getting none of that like daily ambient exercise that I used to even leaving the apartment. I run up and down the three flights of stairs. I'm just not doing that anymore for months on end. So it became important to me because I'm a dancer to continue to try to stay physically fit in Mm. my apartment, stretching and finding YouTube videos, yoga and things like that. So that was kind of a pillar of my health, uh, more than artistic creation. And then I, I've been just pivoting as much as possible. I decided to do some voiceover stuff and I had Mm. a friend who had just, um, done his reel and had a lot of help with it. And so he gave me some pieces of wisdom uh, and I had to write all these different characters and then I edited those characters and then I recorded it. It turns out I recorded them all with my microphone backwards. So I had to <laughs> do it again. You'd think you'd know what the front is. And now it seems obvious, but I definitely had been doing it wrong for at least a year. I've had this microphone for so long. Uh, oh <laughs> and then that's why they, like the volume was turned way up. The gain was way up. It's like, why are these settings so high? It's backwards. Um, and, and so, and then I was like, okay, well I'll slam out an animation reel, a commercial reel, a gaming reel, a narration reel. And that took a month, I think of efforts and then editing it. I had no idea how to do that. Absolutely. Mm. And I really don't have the programs to do that. So I was using GarageBand, and so I couldn't really edit well. So the recordings themselves had to be really good. Mm. And, um, So I put that together and then I've been writing a lot. Uh, I've been trying to look at old projects and say, what can we bring up and how can we just do a little bit of work on each one? I've been applying for a lot of grants, any grants Mm. that come up. I've been just jumping on them and saying, okay, this is their mandate. What do I think I could create in their mandate? And then, Mm. and then start doing something. I mean, this motivation kind of waxes and wanes with the day. So it's, there's a lot of productivity in a burst and then a lot of like stagnant time of doing nothing. So, um, but even uh, with the writing, I thought, okay, uh, I just learned what copywriting is. And it turns out I've been Mm. doing it for years. So Mm. I put together a portfolio of my written work. And now I'm thinking, okay, what if I, can I work as a writer? Uh, what can, what can I do to, to get that out there? Because wouldn't that be like a really excellent side hustle to theater and things like that? Just what are my skills? What Mm. do I like to do? I'm stuck at home. Let's, let's try and get it going. But like I said, that motivation isn't permanent. It, it really comes and goes. Well, I mean, for me, whenever one of the thing, one of the ways that I have in the past tricked myself into writing because I always found it hard to write in the place I live. 
Um, I'd go to a coffee shop or something just for that change of scenery. And now I feel like that's been robbed from me. So like all the things that I would, you know, the ways that I get out in the world and like see things and experience the world and just like the ideas that come from moving around in the world and seeing things that's gone. Yeah. That inspiration, the people watching. Yeah. Yeah, and the way you just kind of drift off and look at something. Yeah, that's true. I'd never really written in public like that before. I think I'm too easily distracted. Mm. I like working in my apartment, but I liked working in my apartment when I also got to leave my apartment. So I would say that inspiration is just as important to me, but just not at the time of writing. But Mm. now it's like, oh, am I going to wake up, walk five feet and sit down at my work desk and, and work all day? No, I, I'm i avoiding that the same yeah. way everyone avoids it. And then they take themselves and they're like, fine, I'm going to go to the coffee shop and this is going to be my office and I'm going to get stuff done. Before it was more like, ah, I'm finally home. Yes, I can. Yeah. I finally, I have uh, five <laughs> hours free. I can write. Yay. And it was a treasure. Now it was, it was, became more of like this boring thing. Like there's my table again, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny because, write. you know, getting out, getting out into the world and like just seeing the world is a form of writing. Like Charles Dickens used to just walk around London when he was like short on ideas and he'd just walk around and like look at things and hear people and then he'd go home and he'd write. Yeah. And that's part of a process. And it keeps your finger on the pulse. You know, yeah. what's everyone doing? How are we feeling? What's important to people right now? And mm. those kinds of things, you want to be on top of it because there's, not that many opportunities. So you don't want to be telling a story that's been told over and over again. You want, you want to stay fresh. You want that to be, you want the thing you're talking about to be interesting to other people. And you're, I feel so alienated from the whole world as everyone does. I know that's not just me, but I don't know what's going on in, in everyone's lives. No. And also we're all like, we all have just the same conversation. If you see people out, people, when they meet, they stand six feet apart and they say, so how you doing? I'm doing all right. All things considered. Yeah, me yeah. too. Okay. Is there anything else that we could talk about? Not really. All right. Nice to see you. Hi. I know we have family zoom uh, yeah. meetings every Sunday night. We normally had a Sunday night dinner with everybody. It's like 14 people on a zoom and you'd think it'd be chaotic, but it's silent. We go one by one. There's like a host that says, Laura, how are you doing? Uh, Emily, how are you doing? And everyone goes, yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's 20 minutes. It's it, We're done. And then somebody yeah. said, should we be taking minutes? Nothing happened. Everyone's no. still the same. <laughs> There's, I can't even, I actually had to prepare for this interview thinking about like, okay, what have I been doing? <laughs> Other than the nothing, yeah. like the vast nothingness that I've been doing, what are the things that I actually did do? And there's a lot sort of in there. I also have been facing the most rejection uh, because I've noticed that trying harder. So, you know, we're all desperate. Okay, what can I do? What can I uh, I'll apply for this? I'll apply for that. I, I'm not really fitting in that mandate, but I'm going to go for it anyway. We're in a pandemic. Let's try. And the the more things I throw myself out into, now I'm getting all the time rejection, way more than than normal. And I've had to say to myself like, okay, this is a reflection of the time and of your choices of where you're trying to apply yourself. But so don't be discouraged in doing the work to do that. That's part of it. You're the, the application becomes the motivation to work. So these deadlines with like the recommender grants, for example, the Ontario mm-hmm, Arts mm-hmm. Council, those are motivations to get 
moving because otherwise there are no deadlines. If you yeah. say you have an eternity to write a book, that's why I haven't written a book. I've had the same amount of time. <laughs> it's always, it's infinite, but I need deadlines. I need, and nothing kickstarts a project more than having to apply for a grant for it. Yeah. You, you know, to- deadlines are, deadlines are an amazing thing. I mean, I never would have, I never would have finished my play of the commandment if I hadn't got into a fringe. Right. That's why I applied to fringes was like the only way I'm ever going to finish this and stop like just needling away at it or noodling away at it is if I actually have a deadline for performance. Yeah. And that, you know, that became completely necessary and helpful to be, to be like, Oh, Oh, this has to be done. Yeah. It speaks. I don't know about you, but it speaks to the performer in me. Like if I don't get this written, then it's not going to be good to present. Like I'm going to look like a fool in it if I don't write it well now, because the writing is so creative. That's, that to me seems more artistic than performative, Mm. but I always thought with those deadlines, like, well, I better get this done because I want to look good or like not even, you know, like I want this to be good. I want to represent this work well. So I got to get it done now instead of just sometimes you're writing more for fun and more for artistic purposes you can take as long as you want for that it doesn't matter you know yeah that's for you but yeah those that's why I'm I'm taking every opportunity I can but it does mean like tenfold more rejection which is just harder to take right now uh, we're, we're good it at it. We, we know what that this life this career is full of rejection and 90 percent of the time I'd say I forget about things as soon as I push submit you know mm-hmm. and but now I'm really being a little bit more hurt by the rejections than than normal. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, as far as writing a, a play and getting it getting it out there, especially something that might be solo, I got some really good advice early on, which was like set a deadline for the writing, mm-hmm. where you can stop being a writer and now you can be the actor. Exactly. If you are able to tweak it at any time, you will, and you will never be prepared. Yes. Yes. And that's sort of my advice for people who are going into fringe is that you want to be done the writing by like February. You, if you're writing it and then performing in it yourself, and even if you're not, you want, you want the writing part to be done before all those questionnaires start shooting out. They get really overwhelming around March and April where they want to know your publicity and they want you have to take all these photos and you have to do all the biographies and start the program and those things are going to be overwhelming and then forget about rehearsing and you know let the actors make the changes you don't need to keep updating the script every time an actor or Mm. you or others make a change to it that was one of the things I learned with the musical I was constantly Mm. updating the script like oh that was a good idea the way they said that and I put it in there it's like it doesn't that's that's theater it it breathes a little bit from the script yeah the next actor isn't gonna say it like this it's not gonna land the same way so you can chill out I was doing too many roles (laughs) and then still trying to edit the writing and it's what I uh, what I learned was uh, just out of like doing like fringes and, and touring with a solo show was I front loaded all my publicity stuff 
yes. uh, from poster to anything that would be used for promotion. I had so many promotional images that I'd created just in case so that like in the middle of a run, if you get a good review and you, and you have a poll quote, you slap that poll quote on an image and throw that on Instagram, like that yes. kind of stuff. Like yes. do that early on and then yes. you don't have to worry about it at the time. You are so right. That was our weakness too with Silver Lining and it it's lands on me. We're using the same picture over and over and over for every new like review or like mm. it was the same stupid. I was so sick of it by the end because we didn't we didn't do that. We didn't front load that that chore <laughs> to me. Yeah. Uh, and you, you want a lot, you want all kinds of, even if they're just images, they don't necessarily have to be pictures of you or of the actors or on the stage, like just a variety of images is going to keep people interested. Even though there's something to say about, you know, a, re a repeat image kind of getting into people's minds, like burrowing in and creating a little bit of interest that way. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, yes, get, stockpile of promotional material that you can use ready to go. I was always like emailing somebody late in the middle of the night, like, could you make this into a poster? Cause I don't have that skill. <laughs> I, I don't Photoshop. I don't, yeah. I, I don't, I don't have that. Uh, and it was always an emergency. Always. It was always like, can you, can you get this to me at night and more? I don't even care what it looks like. It, it was always do that early. You're so right. That is like top thing to do. Like I, I remember, um, after I knew what my poster was going to look like, um, I just sat there and I did a bunch of images myself with like my camera on a timer. And then just like, I had, I must've had like 80 images that I called down into good ones, good, strong images. Mm -hmm. And then I was able to use those later on. I have like a bank of images, but like if I hadn't done that in like January, knowing that I was in the fringe, mm -hmm. I would, I wouldn't have had time when suddenly we start thinking about promotion. Right. Because you have a thousand other things to be doing. Yeah. But that, and if that, you're that thinking about it, time. so many people are like, they're reminded by the emails from fringe. Oh, you better start, you know, you got to get your promotion in, you got to get your poster, make sure that you're thinking about promotion. By the time they're sending that out, <laughs> it's, it's too, late. too late. I know I've, that's yeah, it, That's exactly why I think you need to have the writing done by February. Um, and they send out a calendar. Like the fringe is a well-oiled machine. They send out and they tell you when things are going to happen, be happening. Mm -hmm. You're so yeah. right. You By the time they tell you to do it, you already better have started. Otherwise, it's Absolutely. Just, you're going to go nuts, especially if you to cut on costs, for example, take on several roles mm -hmm. within your own company or if you're an individual, you know. Well, that's certainly why like when I was doing a solo show, when I was on tour, like touring this show, it was like, it's just me. I'm the actor, the, 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 the producer. I'm the publicist. I'm all of these yeah, things. Yeah. And if I'm going to keep my sanity, I have to do myself a favor and have enough done up front to be able to, <laughs> to not worry about it later on. And with a solo show, all of a sudden the fear clicks in like, I've got to perform this. Yeah. I have to, where You have to cut yourself off and say, I'm, I'm the actor now only, you know, mm -hmm. I, and this is when I started to do the solo show for this year's Fringe before the world collapsed. Uh, that was something that was really important to me is to say, I, I got a co-producer so that at some point that person becomes the producer and I just stay the actor and that all of those other yeah. things are done because 
in a solo show, it's you. You're mm-hmm. and often we write solo shows for ourselves to showcase ourselves. It's not to showcase the writing. It's not to showcase how good we are at publicity <laughs> or putting on a show. It's is the show good? Were you good? And if you don't give yourself time to pr- to rehearse properly and to put those other things aside, uh, it's not gonna it's not gonna be good. You're not gonna be proud yeah. of your work. And that's a real struggle because you want to constantly check social media like, oh, did I did I make a post today? No, rehearse. The show is an hour long. You're the only one in it. You got to You have to know what's going on and be prepared. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And as soon as like as far as posts go, like like I would say if somebody was thinking about about how to do that, once you've got your post, especially promotional, not necessarily the here's poll quotes. Like figure out what your campaign is. You can schedule that shit in advance Mm -hmm. so that like you take a week, you schedule all your posts leading up to leading up to fringe. And then, you know, that way you don't have to worry about it. Yeah. And in terms of advertising, the earlier you start and the more you can sprinkle it in here and there rather than just chunking it all at one time, that's so much better. Certain certain outlets, news outlets know Fringe is coming. So mm-hmm. you can contact them early and say, hey, can I get an early bird shout out here uh, in April or May just to get something going? Or for my solo show, I know I'm able to workshop some of it as stand-up comedy. So I can mm-hmm. go, maybe not anymore, we'll have to revisit this. But at the time, I could go to an open mic and workshop t- five to 15 minutes of the material at a time. That also works as promotional material because people are, I could say at the end of it, oh yeah, I have a solo show. There's 45 minutes more. It comes yeah. fringe. The, I had a whole plan on how to start way early by just planting these little seeds constantly, especially as a solo show, because you don't get the pull of the other actors in the show. Silver lining, we had like 15 people in the cast. We knew yeah. we were going to bring in a, a huge audience because the cast was big. But for a solo show or for, I would like fewer than four people, you, the, you have to get the word out. Otherwise, yeah. nobody's coming to your show. You're the only one who worked on it. Of course, it's going to be like people in the fringe community who will come see it on a whim. But you have that it becomes very important, that marketing and yeah. advertising of your solo show. You have to have a strong, you have to have strong visuals. You have to have a, a, a good way, like something to convince people to come in, especially early on. You've got to get yeah. people in early on, you know? And you don't want to have to call in your favors of all the people <laughs> you've ever met in your life. That doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to have to say, hey guys, I'm putting on a solo show. I'm super nervous. Could you just come to support me because I need it? You know, yeah. you want people to actually be interested in what you're doing. Yes, absolutely. You don't you don't want to be like, because because that kind of like uh, calling in your favors is almost like, I think this might be bad. And so you're like <laughs> setting people up to be like, oh, she's begging people to come now. Yeah. Oh, my God. What is this going to be? You want to be like, you want people to be like, hey, are there? you want people to be asking you, hey, are there tickets for your show yeah. available that I can get? You want yeah. that kind of interest, not the like, please come. And I know people are thinking like, what magical world is this that everyone's in love with your work? But, you know, you have a say in that. If you didn't think the work was good, you wouldn't have applied for Fringe. You wouldn't have done it to begin with. So there you go. You have to believe that your work is good 
And then you don't have to convince other people. You just have to show it to them. But that that is kind of one of the drawbacks of fringe. I mean, it's not fringe's fault, but the fact that you have to do it yourself is really difficult to to promote your own work. And we don't have that kind of brain necessarily as artists and creators and theater performers to know how advertising works and the minds of people in in that way you know that's that's a whole other skill that we're just thrown into like oh yeah i'll make a poster and i'll put it um here you know we're making it up yeah but we have to i mean if we're doing fringe you've got to like if you know somebody who's had a hit show or had a successful show you better ask them you better talk to them you better like 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 take them out for coffee and be like okay so i'm doing a show it's this how would you promote this or what did you do to promote your show? And, and, you know, people will tell you. Yeah. There, uh, we had a fringe mentor just like that. Somebody came to us actually was like, Hey, by the way, um, we should sit down and I should tell you a couple things before you get going. And this was like mm. right away in December. Um, wow. Yeah. He came up to us. He said, you're going to, because, and also silver lining was huge. It was a big production and we were like, Oh, okay. We're, we're going then with this. So we needed to do a lot of work really fast. And this person was so helpful in warning us, setting us up for success that way. And people are, I wonder if fringe has ever thought about doing like a fringe mentor program like that, where like there's a group of people willing to offer advice. Yeah. I mean, they do yeah. a lot of it themselves. Like they, they definitely put out a lot of like uh, how-to videos and things like that. Like they're they're extremely helpful already. But like a one-on-one mentor was like that'd be kind of a cool thing. One of the things that one of the issues with like putting out a lot of a lot of material is you know as as somebody who's like both a performer and in the media, um, I can see how many people don't do the work up front. Mm-hmm. And the reason I do that, the reason I can tell is. Two weeks before Fringe, I will be inundated with requests. Hey, can I come on your podcast and talk about my show? But I've been talking to people about their shows usually since like May. Right. You and I had set up like a schedule for when we I was going to do the show. And that was part of my new strategy that I had learned from the year before is get in early. And you were so kind to say, why don't I follow up with you periodically through the journey? And I was like, yeah, in my mind, like, this is great. Like, you know, yeah. that's exactly what everyone should be doing. And you being inundated by people in the last two weeks. So is all of the media in all of Toronto. Everyone's doing the exact same thing. There's like how many hundreds of participants in fringe every year. And yeah. They're all ever there. And so that's another thing is practice like your pitch. What is the most interesting sentence you can say about your piece? Because sometimes yeah. that's all anybody's going to read. You know, yeah. you need a, and sometimes you have to play around with that and test it with people and check is this interesting? Is this what I want to say? And that's a hard thing to write. One sentence is really hard to write. So don't wait to do that because it seems like such a small task it's it's super difficult to yeah that's the thing is people are like oh it's just one set my the, the pitch is like easy we'll come up, up with that you know when we need to but you need to because yeah. you need to start talking about your show really early and when you know you imagine like everybody is contacting the same the same media outlets two weeks before fringe that's too late not just for me for everybody everybody yeah it's way- like and- now has decided who's on the cover yeah. in yeah. like 
maybe April. They know. Like they've already made those choices. They've already planned out their coverage and, and all of that stuff. You've two weeks before is too late. You've got to be doing it six weeks before at the at the most. Right. Like at, at the outside. Plan for yourself. Saying, yes. Here yeah. who I'm gonna contact. It, even a chart of like all the media you're going to contact and when you're going to contact them, when you're going to follow up because you got to follow up almost always. I, I don't think anybody ever responds on the first try. And then maybe another follow up if you really think this this media would be interested in your piece specifically. Yeah. Like get yourself a chart, put it all together. And one of the other things I was going to say is that the written pitch is way harder than your verbal pitch that you're used to giving people when you run into them. Yes. They're different. The the yeah. the written pitch has to be very succinct and descriptive in and of itself, but when you're talking and when you're talking you can add inflection and excitement and you can go way over one sentence. You know, you have a lot more wiggle room and I think people think they're going to convert the way they talk about their show into one sentence and it's not it's not going to be the same thing. I never I never talked about the show the way our tagline which was uh um what's his name? Andrew Alexander Stevens has cancer, but this isn't about him. I never said that to anybody. Mm. I would always say, this is a journey of our protagonist whose brother has cancer and blah, blah, blah. And, I explain, and I'd explain a little bit of the plot. But you're not explaining the plot in your pitch line like that. You're given, no. like, a, you're given like a teaser feeler for your idea and your concept, your tone. It's, it's completely different. Those, those pitches yeah. don't line up as well as you think they're going to when you go to write that sentence. Like, this is a story, you've already lost them, you know? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, your tagline serves one purpose, your pitch serves another. There's so many different things to to, 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 to account for. Yeah, and I'm constantly Googling the difference between logline and tagline because I keep forgetting which one is which. Um, mm. Just keep looking it up. I mean, every five minutes I'm looking up what is a copywriter because I'm trying to figure out. <laughs> and it turns out everything. It's all, it's everything. Yes. Everything I've yeah. ever written, that's copy. You did it. You you are a copywriter. Mm -hmm. You just did not know that was the word. Um, but so but just keep keep asking, keep figuring it out. Like it's it's a mission, but it's not impossible. And so many people have done it before that y there are guidelines. And and fringe again makes it as easy as possible, and they yes. are as accessible as they could be to all artists. So, I mean, you're in good hands if you end up in the yes, fringe. yeah. Now, we had recorded an interview yeah. um, for your show that we weren't able to use because you couldn't perform your show. Right. And I feel like we had talked about, um, that's why I was like, I, I've spoken to Laura more times than is, than, than is in my podcast feed, but that's why, <laughs> is because we had a conversation that we couldn't use because there was no fringe. Right. Um, but in that conversation, um, you and I had talked, I think, about being former religious people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and how and what what that was like and what it was like growing up in religious households. And as a queer former religious person, um, just to like, because I know that's ultimately what the show that you're going to be doing in Fringe is like yeah. is about. Yeah. But like what? 
there's two sort of two things. Like first off, being a queer religious person who's going into theater and also just being a queer formerly religious people, what is what's that journey like for you for you? What was that journey like to to actually come out to your family as 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 queer? It's constant. It's I know now there's more acknowledgement that coming out comes every day. You know, every day you're coming out to a different group of people, to your family, to your friends, to yourself. And and that is a major theme throughout my piece. But my family has a way of forgetting the gay if it's not right in front of them. And I think we touched on this when we talked before because I'm such a passing straight. And even when I came out the first time, people were like, nah, you know, she'll find somebody. Even the the like well-intentioned non-homophobic people in my family just didn't see it for me. They didn't see it in me um, because mm. of their preconceived notions of what a gay person looks like or does. And being single didn't help in that respect because it was really easy for them to just not acknowledge it as part of my yeah. existence. And I feel this is the way that bisexual people who are in heterosexual relationships feel or who are in same-sex relationships mm. feel that way, that their identity yeah. has been kind of taken from them in that way. And so I had to make a real point. I'd be like, gay, 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 me, gay, gay, gay. And then, you know, wearing some rainbow stuff to you, like to my mom's <laughs> house and things like that. I have a shirt that says Fruit Loops that's like vaguely referencing gay stuff. And you know, for a little while they were like, oh, wow, you're wearing that shirt a lot. And then <laughs> at one point my mom was like, could, could you wear a different shirt? And I, I think it bothers her. I think it does bother her to have like a gay – gay, gay, gay in, in their face because they're so used to being able to ignore it. And I wouldn't say any of this is particularly malicious, but it's still hurtful. And hurtful to me is trying to like scream an identity without having to carry a rainbow flag everywhere I go. Like why? Mm. That was my like rebellion against my rebellion was like, now that I'm all dressed up, looking as gay as possible, like why is this necessary? And then I was mad at myself for like doing that. Uh, mm. Now that I have a girlfriend, it's like a little bit easier because she is my proof, you know, of my identity, <laughs> which is so bizarre. But like, even then, I know in the back of some of my family members' minds, they're like, they're just like really good friends. You know, there's just like, I can feel the right. hint of denial that still exists, even though I have this like unverifiable or no verifiable like proof right next to me. It's still it still feels like I'm, they're surprised. They're so surprised every time there's something that I relate to that's gay. And to be perfectly honest, I am sure I'm not going to invite them to the show. <laughs> I can't, I yeah. can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's too uncomfortable. It's too uncomfortable for us both. And my mom even said when last year around this time saying like, should we come? And I'd say, oh, maybe. And then, you know, three weeks later, should we come? Oh, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe. And then at one point I said, yes, you know what? Yes, come. And then she asked me one more time after that. And I was like, you know what? You're waiting for the no. And I'm fine to give you the no. No, you can't yeah. come. I'm taking yeah. the pressure off of you you're not allowed to come. So don't, you know, mm. it was a bit disappointing because I thought maybe we had turned a corner, but it's not a corner that can be turned right now. No. And it's an easy, it's, it's, it's a difficult, I mean, for them, they've been raised believing 
a certain thing. And now they're trying to grapple with the fact that their daughter, their, their, their child, that their, their relative is, is, is gay, is queer. Like they're, they're trying to, to grapple with it. Right. And you know, that's crossed wires for them. Right. Because at least, you know, that's how it was for me when my dad came out, Mm -hmm. it was like, I mean, I'd already started down, down the path of being, of, of sort of rejecting the fundamentalist uh, ideas of, of, of pretty much everything. But like, that was still a switch. That was still something that had to be worked on. Um, and it, it is something that has to be worked at, right? Yeah. They have to work at it. Yeah. They ha- mm-hmm. In fact, they should be working at it harder than you're working at it. Right. But that's, you know, kind of their privilege is to be like, well, we don't have to. Like, they don't feel the emotional yeah. push to do that. Yeah. I'm constantly in a state of like, okay, what can I do? What can I do? Because I don't feel validated. So I feel compelled to do something about it. But they're not necessarily mm-hmm. feeling that emotional push. Like, ah, she's fine. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> and, and the religious aspect of it is more about the sexual side of it in, in, in my experience that is really bothersome. And I think mm. a lot of the content of my show, it's not explicit, but it's sexual enough. And like suggesting even sexual activity is like, Wah! like they just can't, there's a, I, yeah. I can feel the repulsion of that. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I know a lot of actors feel that way. Like if they go to do a sex scene, they're like, I don't really want my parents to see this, but I'm not even, I'm just discussing the possibility that that yeah. could happen. You know, it's on such a like uh, fragile level, but it's yeah. absolutely not okay. And even regular sex talk in the family is like, well, why you, ugh, why would you bring that up? Like, you know, it, it's very, it, it's very icky. Now, now Laura, when you were growing up religious, were you growing up in a, um, was it like an evangelical it was sort of Catholic. church? Was that? It was Catholic. Okay. And mm-hmm. my grandma wanted to she went to seminary school which is where the priests go to become priests and Mm -hmm. so and i was like singing in the choir we went to church every week and when i did start to doubt it is when i noticed the stronghold i thought we were just kind of like doing this fun thing i didn't really like it but like who likes everything when they're kids you know what i mean like you're dragged (laughs) to the grocery store i hated the church as much as i hated the grocery store but once I started to rebel, I was met with like, not even rebel. I was like, hey, uh, I know like a lot of words now that I'm 15, but I don't know what the fuck we're talking about right now. You know, <laughs> like what is everyone saying in church? What are what are we talking about? It Everyone's just kind of like doing these things. And as soon as I brought any of that up, it was like, this is a face. Stop it right now. You're, you're hurting me. You're right. Wrong. It was like yeah. such a, and yeah. that like kind of, surprised me to know that other people didn't live that way, that they didn't have this hanging over them. Mm. And that was really surprising. I wouldn't have considered us particularly religious until I tried not to be. Ah, yes. And then I was like every, and I went to a Catholic school. I ended up at a Catholic uh, university even, which was completely by mistake because I was atheist by then. Um, but it, it still had this hold on me. And then when I came back to Toronto and I was like, Oh my God, there's, there was a religious inflection to everything. It prayers before everything. And kind of like just Mm -hmm. like an overtone of like, what's what in this world. And, uh, it, it, I, I didn't realize how stifling it was. 
Yeah. I mean, I've, I remember growing up, we went to an evangelical church for quite a while. We were Baptist and stuff. And so like, that's, that's a really hard tradition to grow up in as a, when you hit puberty, um, as you know, you start to be flooded with hormones and you're like thinking about sex, but thinking you're terrible mm-hmm. for thinking about sex. Oh, and yeah. like, cause that's it. Like, Oh, I thought about it. That makes me a bad person. And like so much internalized um, disgust actually. Yeah. Um, and so it's like such an unhealthy thing to be brought up in, and, in that way. And you're taught to suppress and yes. that's, it goes for everybody. Everybody's sexuality is suppressed, but homosexuality is suppressed in a way that they don't ever want you to unsuppress that. Yes. Never. Yeah. And I distinctly remember being like 15, 16, sitting, and I realized I had a crush on my history teacher. And I thought to myself, shut this down. I had the most, yeah. the inner monologue I had was so serious. It wasn't like me. I was such like a bubbly, like bing kind of girl. But this voice that told me so sternly and so seriously, do not think about this again. Do not tell anybody and do not ever think that this would be okay shut this yeah. down. And I didn't think, feel, or say anything for like four years. It it worked. Yeah. Like that, whatever voice that was, that just pushed like this finger, like way down into that thought worked really well because of what I had been conditioned and what you also had been conditioned to do. Sure. The interesting thing for me is that, is that yes, it worked for a while. Right. Like it can only work for so long. And of course, I was profoundly unhappy. You know what I mean? Yes, of course you were. And I was calling it the problem in my journal. Like I couldn't even acknowledge it. I don't even think I knew what I was talking about when I was writing the mm. problem. Like there, there's a problem. There's I can feel a problem. I don't know what yeah. it is. I'm calling it the problem, you know? Wow. Yeah. No. But now... It's, it- Sorry, but now, like, the kind of air around gay, even when we're talking about, like, priority groups for, like, um, grants and things like that and and stories they want to be told, people are like, ah, yeah, you're gay, so what? You know what I mean? (laughs) The shift has been so dramatic in in our lifetimes. I I think that's what's worth commenting on is, like, how, how awful it was and how now it's like it's almost not even acknowledged like ah oh, yeah whatever it, it, there, that's that's a harsh transition to live through but people sure. kind of skip the part where you went through that and they're like yeah but now you're fine right and everybody's like cool and things are good for gay people right now like you're you know it almost the way things now almost kind of like erase a bit of the past in yeah and yet and yet and yet we have situations, lots of situations where it's still, you know, you have people raise, like there had to be a law passed to prevent conversion therapy. Right. Like it still exists. The problem still exists, especially in, in a lot of churches like that's like, and, and you know what, out in the street, there's still, you know, if you, if you can't walk down young street, holding hands with your same sex partner, there is still a problem. Right, right. And I'm very aware when I am holding my girlfriend's hand that mm-hmm. we are on display. It's, it's, yeah. I would say like at least 80% of the time, it's fine. 
or positive, and that's great. But I also get there's a hint of like, huh, lesbians, you know, like there's yeah. a, <laughs> we're like cute and like a- appealing to the eye, you know, we're, yes. we're the kind of queer yeah. people are like cool with because it's like, wow, look, look at that. I could be a part of that maybe, you know, there's, yeah. there's an essence of that. But even mm. then, it, it, there is there is watchful eyes, you know. I, yeah. I've had same sex partners before, and or opposite sex partners before, and that doesn't happen. People don't look at you, no. you know. And it, there's just like an awareness that oh, we're not quite there yet. Yeah, holding hands as you walk down the street with your same sex partner is uh, it's it's a statement. Yes. That you're making. Yes. You know, maybe uh, maybe during Pride, less so much. It depends on what neighborhood you're walking through, uh-huh. but it's a statement. And it's a statement I'm happy to make. I love when we walk by, little girls especially, because one of the mm. things that was hanging over me was like that lesbianism was like about sex. It was so much, it was so ingrained in sex, which again, the religious was like, no, it was like this double whammy of being like gay and also like hypersexualized. And I only realized like when I I was 23 years old, I was like halfway through my degree when I was like, oh my God, I was watching like uh, Ellen DeGeneres in her sitcom. And I was like, they were just holding hands and they fell asleep together. I was like, if that's what gay is, I'm so gay. Like, I didn't know that. I didn't, I was 23 years old and I didn't know that it didn't, it was more, it was love. I was in love yes. with a woman, not mm-hmm. just sexually attracted to this woman. And that was my only impulse towards her, you know? So I'm proud to walk down the street. And hold my girlfriend's hand and show young girls this is this is love. This is this is what gay is. It it's whatever you want it to look like. It's gentle, it's it's funny, it's kind, it's you know, that's really important to me because I feel like that was the number one thing that held me back was like that it had to be primarily sexual and that that was bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Laura, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I love talking to you. This has been a Homebody Productions production.